Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's the Thursday, the 23rd of September, if you're watching this on the video. And we're here for the purposes of hearing the moderator's sermon preached to us. There's about a dozen of us here in St John's Bendigo, and I welcome you. If you've not been in St John's Bendigo before, here we are, and we're delighted that the Reverend Peter Phillips is going to preach to us this morning. So thank you for joining us. Uh, The service is going to continue as follows. The Reverend John Sutherland is going to pray, and then Reverend Keith Bell is going to read, and Mim Williams is going to read, and then the moderator is going to preach. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we approach you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our heavenly intercessor. We come before you as a needy people, utterly dependent on the God who is our creator and the Christ who is our redeemer. We praise you, the living God, for your infinite wisdom, power, and goodness, for your holy justice and tender love. To such a God we come to find our refuge in time of trouble. We acknowledge our sins and our failures as we need day by day to ask for your mercy and pardon. Assure us again of your forgiving love and of the renewing and strengthening power of your gracious spirit. We give thanks again for the glorious message of the gospel and for the divine call which opened our eyes to see our need of a Savior and to know by grace that we are children of God. Help us today and always to rejoice in that gospel, to live by it, and to make it known. We thank you that you have gathered us into the fellowship of your redeemed people, and that you extend your covenant mercies from generation to generation. We give thanks for this branch of the church in which we serve. We give thanks for your providential care, supplying all our needs, our daily bread, our homes and families, and for every good and perfect gift that comes from above. We come now, O God, to plead your mercy in these days of much distress, that you would free us from the evil which in your strange providence you have permitted to come upon us. We live in a fallen world, and so, as Christians, help us to bear, as must all mankind, the burden of your visitations upon a rebel race. But how we thank you that by the comfort of your Holy Spirit, We can trace your loving hand in the midst of affliction, for you give us hope in our Lord Jesus, who suffered for us. 
We live in the light of his triumph over sin and death and over all the powers of darkness. And you have given us the hope of glory in the world to come. So enable us to walk by faith, not by sight. Bless and protect our loved ones and families, especially those who are sick and grieving. Have mercy on our land and its leaders. Open their eyes to recognize their need of heavenly wisdom and to see that they are accountable to you, the living God. Deliver us from our enemies who would do us harm and oppress us. In this present age, may we yet see the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus triumphing again throughout this world and in this land. So now, O Lord, bless us as we meet in assembly. Uphold our brother Peter as he accepts the responsibility of leadership, together with our officers and their staff. Guide the conveners of our committees in the business which they bring before us. Enable us all to encourage one another and to be forbearing when we differ. May we do what seems good, not only to ourselves, but most of all to your gracious Holy Spirit, who alone can guide us into all truth. These are humble prayers we bring before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear from God's word as it's written for us in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 51, reading verses 1 to 16. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed.
Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and a worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces that pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord your maker. Who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. I will be reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, 
both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Good news is usually welcome news. It isn't cancer or your job application has been successful or the pandemic is over. Is or will be, would be good news and therefore welcome news. Of course, good news for some might not be good news for others. If you were in desperate need of funds in dire financial straits and you were hoping a rich uncle would die and leave you his estate and the news was it's not cancer, well, it might not be good news for you. The Apostle Paul declares, however, that the gospel is good news for everyone always. He was, he tells us in Romans 1 and 1, set apart for this gospel And, verse 14, under obligation, that is to preach it, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And he was, he tells the Romans, uh, the Christians at Rome, eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And yet, instead of continuing, uh, for the gospel is wonderful, or for I am excited by the gospel, he continues in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And we wonder, why would anybody be ashamed of good news? Would your doctor be ashamed to tell you it's not cancer? Or will our Premier be ashamed to tell us that the pandemic is over? Surely I am not ashamed suggests that there were temptations, that Paul had been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel and that he had overcome those temptations so that he was not ashamed. And could we be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Are there temptations that we must resist and overcome if we too may say with the apostle, I am not ashamed of the gospel? It seems to me that the two main temptations are fear of scorn and fear of suffering. Scorn is hard. Whoever came up with the saying, sticks and stones may break your bones but names will never hurt you, never tasted scorn. And no one in their right mind enjoys suffering. The Apostle Paul knew both what it was to be scorned for the gospel and to suffer for the gospel. And he knew this was the inevitable lot of every faithful testifier to the gospel, scorn and suffering. 1 Corinthians 1 and 23 has has the reason for scorn. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
And yet he was not ashamed of the gospel. He'd weighed up the cost, even though he might be scorned for it, even though he might suffer for it, he was not ashamed. So if good news is usually welcome news, why is it that gospel messengers are so often scorned and abused? Well, at the heart of the matter is that the gospel offends human pride, human self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. For it tells us that our deepest problems are are not the structures of society, they're not things outside of us, they're not our relationships with other people, but it's our rebellion against God, our creator, that we are sinners, liable to be punished by God for our rebellion against him, and that the only way of reconciliation with God and forgiveness is through repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the Apostle Paul tells of his ministry in Acts 20, verse 21, he taught in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And preaching to the Athenians, he said, Acts chapter 17, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. You see, repentance is not a work. It's not something by which we earn God's favour, but it's a humbling of ourselves before God to turn from our sins to him, and it offends our pride. And so does the faith that is commanded by the gospel, for faith takes from us the hope we all naturally cherish that if we put our minds to it, we are able to do enough good to be accepted by God. Yes, we know we're not perfect, but we still cherish the hope of acceptance with God in our own standing. But salvation by faith means that acceptance with God is not by our good works or our good character, but by grace, by his free gift. For his glory and praise, not ours. As the Apostle Paul explains it in Romans 4 and verse 16, it is by faith so that it may be by grace. And Matthew Henry comments, for God will have every crown thrown at the feet of grace, free grace, and every song in heaven sung to that tune, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name be the praise. And yet the gospel is good news, especially the people who know their guilt, who feel the vileness of their sins, who are are ashamed of themselves and the things they have thought and said and done and who long to be forgiven, for people who find life unbearable but who fear death even more than life. It's good news because it's the good news of God's love for us sinners in Christ Jesus. The good news that God sent his Son not to save the righteous but for sinners. That Jesus says, come to me all who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the good news that God has done what we could never do. Make peace between us sinners and himself. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. 
that the blessedness of the forgiveness of sins and peace with God and joy in the Holy Spirit are a free gift from God by grace through faith. Like the Apostle Paul, we, the ministers, elders and members of the Presbyterian Church of Victoria, we who are the beneficiaries of the gospel, we who have, through the gospel of God, been reconciled to him by the death of his son, we also have been set apart by God for this gospel, and we too must not be ashamed of it. In fact, the constitutional documents of our church affirm this gospel priority. The declaratory statement adopted in 1901 when the Presbyterian Church of Australia was formed states that, quote, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that he has provided a salvation sufficient for all and adapted to all and offered to all in the gospel, and that our church regards the facts of the gospel, the love of God to all mankind, his gift of his son to be the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, and the free offer of salvation to men without distinction on the grounds of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice as vital to the Christian faith, and that it also regards its ministers as pledged to give a chief place in their teaching to these cardinal facts and to the message of redemption and reconciliation implied and manifested in them. Sadly, for much of the 20th century, Other priorities dominated the life of our church. But God has had mercy upon us. Since 1977, the gospel has been restored to its rightful place in our church. We know that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And we know that we are like the Apostle Paul, under obligation to unashamedly proclaim it to all who will hear. But what is the future? How can we, with God's help, continue unashamed of the gospel? How can we pass it on to generations to come so that they will not be ashamed of it either? The Apostle Paul urged the Philippians, chapter 2 and verse 14, to do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the world of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast translates a word meaning to hold upon and then to retain, to pay attention to. The authorised version translates it, hold forth. Perhaps the translators were overly influenced in their choice of words by the connection with shining as lights in the world. Understanding the Apostle to be exhorting the Philippians to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. Now, one can debate the merits of translations. What I want to do is to take both options on the logic that it's not possible to actually hold fast to the gospel without also holding it forth. How then may we hold fast the word of life? How can we overcome fear of scorn and fear of suffering so as to be not ashamed of the gospel? 
John Pollock, in his book William Wilberforce, God's Statesman, explaining Wilberforce's conversion and his reluctance to seek advice from John Newton, says, quote, The fashionable world of 1785 looked at evangelicals with the contempt, suspicion and ignorance that Soviet Russia reserves for its Jewish and Christian believers. And our world of 2021 is much the same. It holds us in contempt and increasingly with hostility. And so to overcome the fear of scorn and the fear of suffering, we must firstly hold fast to our doctrine of Scripture that the Bible is to be believed and obeyed because it is the word of God, that he, truth itself, is the author thereof. It is his word, and therefore it is truth, for it's on this basis alone that we can preach the gospel as the gospel of God. Since the very beginning, the tempter's strategy has been to discredit the word of God And so we can be absolutely certain that he is still at work to destroy or at least to diminish the authority of the Bible, even in our church. Now, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I make no pretense to prophecy. I might be mistaken. It does seem to me that we are unlikely to be seduced away from our faith in the Scriptures by the scholarly unbelief that dominates so much of the Christian church today, even amongst people who profess to be evangelicals. Rather, it seems to me that our great danger is compromise with or capitulation to the authority of science, which dominates Western culture. I found a recent example in the July 2021 issue of AP, where our moderator, General Uh, Peter Barnes reflects on the Presbyterian Church of Canada's 2000 declaration, uh, quote, that homosexual orientation is not a sin on the basis that, quote, the weight of scientific evidence suggests that sexual orientation is innate, established early in life and not a matter of choice. Another example of this danger is compromise with or capitulation to the scientific explanations of origins that dominates Western culture. Darwinism, neo-Darwinism if you prefer, or just evolution. Now, it may be that Darwinism is not a present issue in our church, but the pressure to conform to the surrounding culture is enormous. Darwinism masquerades as scientific and it enjoys the privileges our culture affords to science as the source of authority. Any assertion in public of the Bible's teaching on origins is scorned, and it increasingly requires great courage to uphold the Bible's teaching even in church circles. And so I believe it's well that we should name and shame and disown Darwinism. Some might think it's inappropriate that I should raise this matter in this context. John Calvin said to the Queen of Navarre, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Please then indulge me and allow me to do a little barking, for I fear that my master and his gospel are under attack, and I don't want that attack to be in our church. Firstly, Darwinism is materialistic and atheistic. 
It intentionally and explicitly denies any creator or creative force or purpose. It claims that the appearance of design in nature is not because of a designer, but the result of natural selection, a random, purposeless process. However, the Bible declares that God created all things, that this creative act was a supernatural, miraculous work of God, distinct from his providential upholding of all things, that it was by his word and out of nothing. Hebrews 11 and verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Or as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. Uh, Secondly, Darwinism logically requires the spontaneous generation of living things from non-living things. It supposes that once upon a time, in uh, perhaps in Darwin's warm little pond, non-living matter sprang into life by purely natural means. And then it insists upon common descent with modification acted upon by natural selection as the origin of all the different kinds of living things that exist or ever have existed. That every living thing has descended from a single ancestral life form arriving at its present form as the result of natural selection. But the scriptures teach that God created all plants and animals according to their kind, to reproduce according to their kind, and that he created us in in his image, separate from other living things, that he formed Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve, his wife, from one of his ribs, and that these two people are the biological and spiritual ancestors of the whole human race. However, the dispute goes much deeper. This matter goes much deeper than a mere dispute about origins because it touches the heart of the gospel. Jesus clearly believed the Old Testament's teaching about the beginning. When the Pharisees tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? His answer assumed the truth and the divine authorship of Genesis 1 and 2. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. But if Jesus was mistaken, then he was not the Son of God. And if he's not the Son of God, then he cannot save us from our sins. Clearly Darwinism is hostile to both our supreme standard, the Bible, and to our subordinate standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith read in the light of the declaratory statement appended to it. The opening paragraph of the Confessions chapter of creation reads, It pleased God the Father, Son and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world 
and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. The matter is much more serious than mere doctrinal position, however. For if Darwinism is true, then Christianity is false, and the gospel is a tragic delusion. And sadly, it seems all too often that this is more obvious to atheists than to Christians. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, says, Oh, but of course, the story of Adam and Eve was only ever symbolic, wasn't it? Symbolic. So, in order to impress himself, Jesus had himself tortured and executed in vicarious punishment for a symbolic sin committed by a non-existent individual. As I said, barking mad as well as viciously unpleasant. Some say, well, can't we just say God used evolution? However, theistic evolution, a guided, unguided process, is illogically is illogical. It's also so obviously out of step with Scripture. Uh, J.P. Morland points out his article's called How Theistic Evolution Kicks Christianity Out of the Plausibility Structure and Robs Christians of Confidence that the Bible is a Source of Knowledge. Uh, Morland says uh, theistic evolution weakens the rational authority of the Bible among Christians and non-Christians alike. As a result, the Bible is no longer regarded by many as a genuine source of knowledge, and fewer and fewer people take the Bible seriously. In this way, perhaps unintentionally, those who adopt theistic evolution marginalise Christian truth claims in the church and in the public square. And Morland emphasises the danger of theistic evolution by quoting J. Gresham Maitken. Quote, false ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervour of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. How then should we hold forth the gospel in our generation? I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should make creation the be-all and end-all of the faith, or even the main thing. The historicity of Genesis is the foundation of the gospel, but it's not a necessary condition to the preaching of the gospel or even to the believing of the gospel. Many a person has received the gospel and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved without clear views on the foundations of the gospel or even while believing in Darwinism. On the other hand, Darwinism, a materialistic dogma hostile to the faith, dominates the minds and hearts of most Westerners. We may resolve to ignore it in our preaching of the gospel, but what will we say to people who raise it as an objection to the gospel? If we have conceded the right of materialism to speak with an authority greater than scripture on the foundations of the gospel by compromising the scripture's witness to creation, on what rational grounds can we deny materialism authority to reject all the miraculous in the scriptures, even the incarnation, the miracles, the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus? To be effective in the longer term in gospel ministry, 
we must proclaim the gospel within the broader framework of the Bible as a revelation from God and therefore as a certain source of knowledge, as his word and therefore true in all it teaches, not just in its religious teaching. Our target audience is increasingly biblically illiterate and so we must shape our gospel proclamation accordingly. Don Carson, commenting on the Apostle Paul's preaching in the Areopagus on the occasion of his visit to Athens, points out that preaching to a biblically illiterate audience, quote, Paul paints a worldview of the true God, a linear view of history, the nature of sin and idolatry, impending judgment, the unity of the human race and the oneness of God, all as the necessary framework without which his proclamation of Jesus makes no sense. And he asks, what does that mean for evangelism today? I believe it means that in testifying to the gospel, we must not only be unashamed of the gospel, we must also be unashamed of its foundations. For without these, our preaching of the gospel will not make any sense any more than Paul's preaching of Jesus to the philosophers philosophers of Athens would have made sense without the Bible's big picture of righteousness in creation, ruin by the fall, and redemption by the blood of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. However, as important as it is that our ministry be gospel-focused and set in the Bible's big picture of creation, fall, and redemption, It will not be enough to merely proclaim the gospel. We must more and more adorn the gospel by bearing the fruit of the gospel in both community and graciousness. In other words, we must demonstrate the power of the gospel in us and in our relationships with one another. Now, it's our prayer and our intention as a church that the Lord would bless our testifying to the gospel of God to outsiders so that they would be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. But as the surrounding culture moves further and further away from anything Christian, so conversion to Christ is going to be more traumatic and more isolating unless new believers can find new and real community in the church. Rosaria Butterfield, a former lesbian feminist and atheist professor, says of her transition to faith in Christ and membership in the church, quote, it was hard and I was in the midst of a body of believers that knew it would be hard and who knew that they were not more merciful than God. They didn't try to make it less hard. What they did was that they came in close. They understood that leaving my lover was one thing, but leaving LGBTQ community is another entirely. That is a community that functions very much like a family. Every night of the week, someone's house is open for food, fellowship, and to stand between you and depression. This little church knew that if I was going to make it, they were going to have to be my family. They were going to have to live out Mark 10, 28 to 31. It had to be real, not just words. They did that. That has become a calling as well in my life. When you stand alongside someone who needs to lose everything for Jesus, 
You're not helping that purpose person if you try to jolly them out of that loss. But you are helping that person if you stand alongside and you're available and not just by invitation only. Please don't think that community is a fellowship meal on the third Lord's Day of the month in which you bring a covered dish. That's not how real people function. It just isn't. In part, Rosaria became a Christian because she found in the congregation that was her point of contact with the gospel a fulfilment of Jesus' promise in Mark 10, 29 to 30, where he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Her testimony is that after a long struggle with God, quote, one ordinary day I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, her pastor, Floyd was there, his wife. The church that had been praying me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. Jesus triumphed. However, uh, since that day, Rosaria has discovered that not all congregations are like that congregation. She says Christian communities to me often look like we are on a starvation diet of community. Friend, does this remind you of your congregation? Does your congregation look like it's on a starvation diet of community? Would Rosaria have found community and Christ if she came to your church? Dear friends, if we are to flourish as a church, as a community, and hold forth the gospel in an increasingly hostile world, we must also more and more bear its fruit in graciousness, and especially in the way we speak to and of each other. Consider Ephesians 4, verses 29 to 32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kinder to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. We who serve this assembly as its clerks know from time to time what it is to be on the end of angry, even abusive phone calls because we or some other body in the church has not seen eye to eye with the caller. And we wonder how widespread this way of dealing with disagreements is among us. For not only does such conduct lay us open to the charge of hypocrisy, it also grieves the Spirit of God and it robs us of the unction we must have from him if we are to hold forth the gospel effectively. For the Lord's work is not by might nor by power, but my, my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Our friends, it would be easy for us, would it not, to be discouraged in gospel ministry. We are weak and sinful and the work is hard. 
But be encouraged because God's purposes stand sure. The gospel will triumph. Our prayers, our preaching, our pastoral care, our labouring at community and Christian love will not be in vain. The Lord has stated it plainly. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And if and when you are discouraged, let me commend to you Arnold Dalimore's George Whitfield, and especially the opening chapter on spiritual and moral conditions in England before the revival. Dalimore writes, In the decade between 1730 and 1740, the life of England was foul with moral corruption and crippled by spiritual decay. Yet it was in such conditions conditions remarkably similar to those in the English-speaking world of today, that God arose in the mighty exercise of his power, which became the 18th century revival. Or read something of Spurgeon's preaching, especially his preaching on texts like, many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, says Spurgeon, I love God's shalls and wills. There is nothing comparable to them. Let a man say, shall, what's it good for? I will, says man, but he never performs. I shall, says he, and he breaks his promise. But it is never so with God's shells. If he says, shall, it shall be. When he says, will, it will be. Now he said here, many shall come. The devil says they shall not come, but they shall come. Their sins say, you can't come. God says, you shall come. You yourselves say, you won't come. God says, you shall come. And says Spurgeon, they shall come. They shall come. And naught in heaven, nor on earth, nor in hell can stop them from coming. Indeed, they shall come. For Jesus said, John 6 and 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Yes, they will come, but only because the gospel of God has called them. For it's his gospel that is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. Not our wisdom, not our our oratory, but the gospel. Oh, that God would give us grace not to be ashamed of his gospel not to fear, scorn, or suffering for the sake of the gospel, but to both hold it fast and to hold it forth, to believe it and testify to it, not simply with the right words, but also by revealing its power as we bear its fruit in transformed lives and community, all to the praise of the glorious grace of our God. Now let us pray. Almighty God, we worship you with glad and thankful hearts for your gospel, the gospel of your free grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that this gospel has come to us, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, so that we have turned to you from idols to serve you, the living and true God, and to wait for your Son from heaven, whom you raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In the light of that coming wrath, we pray for ourselves, for you have entrusted us with the gospel to both hold it fast and to hold it forth to all who will hear. 
May we not be ashamed of the gospel. Rather, strengthen us in faith that we may hold it fast in purity and hold it forth in the power of your Holy Spirit, adorned by good works and love for one another and for all, that many believing your word of truth may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to find in him forgiveness of sins, peace with God and joy in the Holy Spirit and that living hope that triumphs over all the trials of this life, even death itself. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.